0: As many of you know, you've been here, that we've been working on a series in 1 Corinthians. And it's an interesting thing because we see so many parallels of what's happening in our society today that were going on nearly 2,000 years ago there in Corinth, where Paul was working with a very, very difficult group of people. And so in our passage, what we want to do, we want to jump into this, but give you a little background for those of you who may not have been here last week. If you were with us last week, you may remember that there was a struggle of impurity. There was a man uh, who was having a relationship with his father's wife, or maybe concubine, we're not sure. But whatever it was, people were shocked by this event that was going on. And so what happens is it's not just this happened, and it was such a terrible thing they did, but the fact that there were some of the Christians in Corinth actually thought, that's pretty cool. Like, that's pretty sharp that that guy's getting away with that. And Paul is just utterly can't believe that these people are arrogant enough to think that that's okay. And so he's saying, listen, you know what? It's bad enough what this guy's doing. And he told us in that chapter before that he said that guy needs to go if he, doesn't, if he doesn't change his ways. And they're saying, but you're proud of it? You're arrogant about it? And he said, this is wrong. This has got to stop. And so what he does, he said, there's going to be a necessity of church discipline. And that's, of course, what they did. And so we're picking up our now our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If yours is slightly different, there just might be a few changes there and there. But keep that in mind. But here we come with this passage. Let's, let's Watch it with me, if you would. He's starting off. He's dealing with an issue that was big in the ancient world, and it sure is today. And it's dealing, how do you deal with lawsuits? We know today we have lawyers, lots of lawyers. I know a lot of lawyer jokes, but I won't use them. But it's important in some ways. But notice what he says here. Paul says to them, to this church in Corinth, he said, Does any of you who has a complaint against someone dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul loves to use this phrase, talking about don't you know? He's going to use it six times in this little passage. Don't you know? Which he always means is, you ought to know. And the fact is, you ought to know, but you don't want to to deal with it. And he says, Does any of you have a complaint against someone dare to go to law before the unrighteous? The unrighteous be those, the outsiders, those who are not believers. He said, And not before the saints? And so he's going to start asking these questions, saying, very easy questions for them to answer. He's going to have four of them, basically. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, that's an interesting passage because there's not that much in the New Testament that talks about the fact that we, the saints, the believers in Christ, are going to be judging the world. There are some places. One of the big places you see it comes in uh, later on, and we'll see it in just a little bit. But he said, do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? He's saying, why is it that you're taking our dirty laundry out from our church and letting people know what's going on? And what a terrible testimony that is. We know that back in the 1970s, early 70s, there were two major big groups, church groups, that uh, two ministries, I should say, that they got into a fix with each other and they started suing each other. And what a terrible statement that was. Two groups serving the Lord, and they were suing each other. And they did. They brought somebody in, and they dealt with it, and they dealt with it. as a pretty good thing, and it moved on. But this is the very kind of thing that he's talking about here in this passage. He said, do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? If the world's judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest case? Like, come on. There's got to be somebody in this church or a group of people in that church that can sit down with this issue and say, okay, let's talk this out. What is the right thing to do? And so what he says here, by the way, the passage that probably he's referring to is probably from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has these visions of creatures and stuff like that. In the beginning of that section in verse 9, he tells about this vision, he said. He said, as I kept watching, these are these Group that was there. I kept watching. Thrones were set in place. And this famous phrase, the ancient of days, took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and his hair was of ha- his head was like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, and his wheels went bl- and his wheels were blazing fire. Then he goes on to describe all these very strange things he saw. But what we see is you come on to this next verse 27 down here. We get the idea of where he, Paul is getting this idea from the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel it said, The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven will be given to the people. That is, the holy ones and the most high. These are the believers, those who are following God. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All rulers will serve and obey him. So out of that passage is probably where Paul gets this idea that we are going to be the ones who are going to be ruling over those people. So he says in verse 3, he's going to do another one of these, Do you not know? Like, don't you get it? Do you not know that we're going to judge angels? Remember what he just said. He said, You're going to be judging the world. Now he takes that up to another level. How about not just world, what do you think about judging angels that are one step above us? And he's saying, if that's true, you're going to tell me there's not one person that can deal right in a lawsuit and not be taking our dirty laundry out on people or else willing to submit to what the church might come through when they meet together? Notice what he said. Do you not know that, you will, that we will judge angels not to speak of things pertaining to this life, so if you've got cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in, in, in the church to judge? In other words, why would you go outside the church to get other people to be doing this? He said, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one wise person among you who will be able to arbitrate between his brothers? In other words, he's saying this again. He's kind of shaming them a little bit. Remember, they loved wisdom. They loved talking about wisdom. And he's saying to him, you know what? You are so proud about how wise you are. There's not one of you here who can help us in the midst of a situation between brothers, Christians that love each other, supposedly, who now are in trouble. And he said, instead, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul's like, I can't believe that you're doing that, and that there's not anyone in your church that's competent to deal with this situation. Now, by the way, anywhere there was a Jewish synagogue in the ancient world, they always had a bait din. A bait din. Bait is just a Hebrew word talking about house. Din has the eyes to judge or judging. So it's called like the house of judgment. It was, in other words, they had their own judicial system. Just like Islam has their own system. And what he's saying here is, you know, we've got a lot of Jewish people in this group. I mean, how is it possible that we couldn't take this to some Jewish guys, some people that are believers, and deal with it? And yet they don't. Instead, they continue to argue. Now he gets very serious in verse 7. Therefore, it's already a total defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. And then he says, this is the thing that we don't like to want to hear when we're in the midst of a lawsuit. Why not rather put up with injustice? Now that doesn't go with the Texas way. Texas way is I'll get what I need to get if I've got to get my six gun now to do it. It's not the way that Jesus particularly said to teach in how we work. He said, why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Now, everything within us, within our flesh, wants to say, it's not fair. I need to get my own. And he's saying, really? Well, what did Jesus teach us? What did he tell us to do? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and you cheat. And this to brothers, your own brothers in the church? By the way... Remember what Jesus said Sermon on the Mount? You've heard, though, to said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On, your contra- on the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, well, turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, well, let him have your coat as well. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to read that passage. Living it is the hard part. But there are times where Christ is called to say, you know what, for the sake of the community, that is the church, for the sake of what's going on, maybe you need to lose it. Maybe you need to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to fight it. And he's saying, why can we not deal with this? And here you are a church. He spent a year and a half discipling these people, and they're still fighting over issues like this. And so he does another one of these "Do you not know?" questions, where he knows the answer. He knows they know the answer. He wants them to tell the answer. Okay? Do you not know that the unjust—that is, these are big people, not part of the faith—will not inherit God's kingdom? Now, let me stop for a minute because I realize that this passage, these two verses, are difficult for some people. They come across as being really harsh at times. I don't think Paul thinks of it that way. But this passage that he's talking about here is difficult in other areas, and we'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. But it's really saying a very interesting thing, saying, what does a believer look like? What is it that God does with people that really, truly come to faith in him? And so he does another one of these do you not know. He says, do you not know that the unjust, that those that are not believers, they're not going to inherit God's kingdom? Again, the kingdom that we're waiting for, the kingdom that's come, and the kingdom that we're waiting for the, when it comes in glory. And he says, don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they're not going to inherit God's kingdom. Now you might think, well, that would, you know, if we really obeyed that, I mean, it seems like half the people in the church might be gone. Uh, hope not. But he's making a point. And his point is very clear. He said, you know, when you come to Christ, that changes people. And so he's going to go on and the to, you know, in this passage. But notice it says, do you not know? You need to know. And he uses this word that you will not inherit. That word inherit is used obviously like your grandmother passes away and you get some money from the will. But they're using it in the broader sense. When he says, do you not know that you will not inherit? It's the idea of, this, of, of all that God has for us that heritage that we have that we're going to have with Christ. And he's saying, you know, really, do you not know that the unjust aren't going to inherit it? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, mere prostitutes, homosexuals, the whole least. He goes through it. And it's interesting what he says. Now, notice the word where, or were, I should say. Notice this. Some of you were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You see what Paul's doing? He's doing a before and an after picture of what the gospel does to people that have truly come to faith in Christ. You were going down the wrong road. You may be one of those idolaters. You may be one of those terrible people. You may have been that drunkard, but you met Christ and the power of the Spirit, you've gone from going this way, in the Hebrew thing you'd say you shoot, er, you're going the other way, in the way of following Christ. And so in that passage, some of you were like this. By, by the way, it's telling us that must have been quite a church, if they had that list of issues in there going on in their church. Some of you were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But notice these beautiful words. It's in purple or blue, whatever that is. Some of you were like this, but notice this. You were washed. That idea when you came to faith in Christ, all that sin, all that junk, all in us and around us, that is gone. We've been washed. you got got the whole idea often in baptism about being raised with Christ, but the idea, too, that we have now a new life. All that trash is gone. All that junk is gone. He said some of you were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That is, you were sanctified. You were set apart by God. You're part of one God's God's chosen people. You were justified. You were declared righteous. Even though it's not like you were righteous by doing things, but by God's grace, he's declared that you are righteous in his sight. This is what Christ has done for you. Three words, washed, sanctified, justified, is saying this is what the gospel does in changing the lives of people. And we, as a church, and we of others, and I know people that are working with ISI, have seen how God can work in the lives of people by the power of the gospel and how God uses that. And there's the contrast. It's your BC days versus your AC days. Your BC days is your before Christ. Before Christ, you were like those people. Your AC days, you're now, after Christ has risen. And he talks about now, you're present. Now notice what he does. I mean, I should ask this question. Some people... Find this passage difficult because for some people it comes out sounding like works religion. Oh, I thought you told me we were saved by God's grace, by faith, that we do that. We're saved, and we've got great salvation, and we can't lose our salvation. And now you're talking about, well, maybe we are drunkard, and maybe we're immoral, and it sounds like maybe we have to work for our salvation. Is that what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm saying. I can understand how people could look at by that way but his point is we're not saved by our actions or our good deeds we're saved by God's mercy but it goes back to the same theme the gospel changes the lives of people and that's the point he keeps wanting to stress god changes people and has an impact on the lives of our world it's the transforming power of the gospel that we see, that what God is working in the lives of people. And so we've got to make a distinction, a distinction between profession and conversion. A lot of people can say, hey, that sounds good to me. I mean, like, who in the world wants to go to hell? Hey, count me in. Where do I got to sign up? Hey, that's great. Yeah, good. Tell me what time, what do we have to tithe? Well, what about 5% tithe? Can we make. No, no. You know, you have this kind of thing saying, hey, wait a minute. There's a lot of people who say, OK, yeah, I'm a believer. But yes, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? And he's saying there's a big distinction between profession and conversion. There's many people say, yeah, yeah, boy, that sounds good. Um, yeah, you know, that's good. I'll, I'll take that. But you look at them five years later, 10 years later, 25 years later, and you realize there has been no change. There seems no gift of the Spirit. There seems to be no care for others. And there have to be a distinction between those that are just, it's just a profession and those that it's a real conversion. Now, people say, well, you know, we're not fruit pickers here to try to tell who does what. I know God's going to do that. He's more than capable of finding out those that are truly his. But it does ask a good question. This came up with my aunt, who I love dearly. She's now with the Lord. But I remember, uh, Kathy probably remembers this, I remember she so told me, she says, well, I know that my son David's gonna be in heaven. And I said, how do you know that, Esther? She says, well, because when he was five years old, he prayed that prayer. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm really glad he did that. I said, but you know, I mean, I know your son really well. I mean, I don't think he's walked in the door of a church in the last 30 years. And he makes fun of Christians and I, I, you know, I hope it's true that maybe he's going to be with the Lord. Maybe, maybe just before he dies or something, he's going to realize he really needs to know the Lord. I, I'm not here to be the one to tell him what he does. But we need to be really careful of assuming that because somebody at five years old prayed a prayer, that they understand what the gospel is today. And we have to be really careful. So we have to be careful with our children. Is it because they're here because yeah, it was good. My parents told me it's right. I guess it must be right. I guess I'm in. But the question is, has there been a time and place where they've come to faith in Christ and they understand what's going on? And do we see how God is working in their lives? Jesus made it pretty clear. Matthew chapter seven, verse 19. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. So you'll recognize them your fruit. That's a hard passage. A lot of people don't want to hear that passage. But what he's saying is exactly true. Let me say it one more time. The gospel changes people. The gospel transforms the lives of those who truly know him. And it tells us that we need to live our lives faithfully to him You've heard me use this phrase too many times, but I love it. God has no stillborn children. We certainly do it among our lives as families. But when God has a person who's truly born of the Spirit, there's no stillborn children. Those that come to know Christ and know him are those that follow him. That passage is a tough one. Some people don't want to hear it. I feel like my goal, the necessity, is to give it as it is, not how we would like it to be. This passage takes a sudden change. In fact, when you start looking at it, you think what in the world does this have to do what he's talking about? Stick with me for a moment, because you see it does connect. Paul is getting letters, and he has to respond to these letters, and this must be one of them. This must be something that these people are saying, and here it is. Paul says, I got this letter, and it said these people are saying this. Well, everything's permissible for me. And Paul's going, whoa, 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 what do you mean by that? Well, Paul, you told us, we're just following what you said. Paul, you told us that we are no longer under the law. Thank God we're no longer in the Old Testament law anymore. We're under the law of grace. We're in the new covenant, and now we can do whatever we want and never we want it, and that's just the way it is. Everything's permissible for me. But Paul says, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop for a minute. I did say that you're no longer under the Mosaic law. But he's saying, but listen, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. There's some things that maybe would not be helpful for your spiritual walk with God or for others. Another statement they're saying, you know, everything's permissible for me, but I'm not going to be brought under the control of anything. In other words, he's trying to deal with them and say, wait, whoa, 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 where are you getting this that everything is open for you? Paul had a real challenge on him. There was two issues. People seemed to fall off this side, or they fell off that side. The one of them was asceticism. That is, we should not marry, we should not have children, we should just be praying all the time. There was this idea of, we saw that late in the Middle Ages, some of that stuff about, you know, we're just going to be our quiet little people. Then there's people that go the other direction. That's license. Do anything you want, whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. And Paul's going, Oi, they! I'm stuck between these two different groups. And they're both wrong. There's a sense that they're both true in the sense that one is not under the law, and the other one has the law, but he doesn't understand it. And Paul's saying, listen, listen to what I'm telling you. Yes, we are no longer under the law, but there are things that we need to do, like caring for other people. And he goes on to talk about this. Now he gets another statement that's going on. Well, you know, food for the stomach and stomach for foods. What do you think about that, Paul? Paul says, yes, you know, but God will do away with both of them. In other words, we're not going to live forever. And then he has this very interesting thing. He comes back to the issue of morality. He said the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he says God raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. His point is saying, you know what? You are stuck over here and you're over here, but don't you see what's happening? You say, listen, food's nothing. Our stomach's nothing. Paul says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Our stomach maybe does mean something. Our body does mean something because we believe that the resurrection and that we're going to be part of that resurrection if we know Christ is our Savior. And so Paul has to keep coming back and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You got part of the story, but you're missing part of it as well. God has raised up the Lord. He's going to raise us up by his power. And then he goes back to that, do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Meganoito, great word, just everybody likes it. Meganoito, it sounds good. It just means like, whoa, are you kidding me? It's like, no way, no way. He says, should we do that? Absolutely not, no way. Do you not know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? Now, for another words, Paul's basically saying there's no such thing as casual sex. When you bring those people together, there's something more than just what you have here. Do you not know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says the two will become one flesh. Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 2. The unity of a man and the woman the way God called them to be. And he's telling them how important that is. And so he comes to this end, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. Because you're hurting yourself and your partner by doing this. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? Think of that phrase. Your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God. And then listen to this great phrase, verse 20 for you were bought at a price. When Kathy and I were young, we went to Jefferson, Texas, out in East Texas. I think that's where you guys are from, isn't it? I think so. And we were there. It was so interesting. We were going through in these beautiful mansions. Then you've realized most of them were built by slave labor. Then you go into the little place they have there, the museum, and they have these things. Joe... You know, was we bought him such and such a time, and we sold him for such and such a thing, and you realize, selling of people. Of course, it still goes on today in different ways. But his point is, do you realize, as a Christian, you are a person who's been bought with a price. It's the price, the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That passage is so powerful to us when we realize that we are people who have been brought into a relationship with Christ, but the price was terrible for Christ. But we have that freedom in him because of what he's done for us. In this passage, and I realize it's a tough one, Paul has to deal with some really tough things. But if you think about it, a lot of things haven't changed from the time of Paul to now. We live in a sexually saturated society, and it just gets, seems to be getting worse. It's a polluted society, and it's a particularly a challenge for our young people. They're growing up in a world that's very different than most of us. The Internet has changed America, not for the good. And the reality is, is, as parents, as grandparents. We need to be very careful that we're doing what we can to help our kids, our children, our teenagers to deal with issues like this that are very, very important. Because a lot of them, they're going to be out in the world. They're going to be about areas where people are going to think, what are you, are you some kind of prude? What's your problem? We have movies that laugh about those people who try to deal with personal purity. You're thought to be a nerd or an idiot or something wrong with you that you're not cashing in on all what's going on. And it's saying, wait a minute, we're called to be faithful to the Lord in our lives, with our body, and he calls us to that. And it's saying that as we come, as a man and a woman, come to know each other, to love each other, to want to be married, it reminds us of the fact that God is still asking us for purity. Even though it may seem strange in our society, it's still saying, this is a great gift that God has given us. A man and a woman have a relationship that's unique to them, that God looks and says, well done. A gift from God, a gift to each other, and to help our children, our grandchildren understand that there's something more than what our world tells us, that he gives us a great gift of chastity, a gift of life together, a life where we serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize that this is a hard passage. We thank you, Father, that it tells us again that we are our, blood, our people that have been bought by the blood of Christ. Be with us. Help us. The scriptures we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.